become as much superior to the angels as the, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. All the angels, he says, he makes his wings, his angels' wings, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels he has ever said, that he had ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Well, sends the reading. Children ages three years to kindergarten are now dismissed for the little landing. Merry Christmas, faith family at the landing. Let's pray one more time and dive into Hebrews chapter 1 one last time during this Advent season 2023. Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, come instruct us with a spirit that wants to learn and absorb and receive everything you have for us in your word. Draw to faith those who are in this room who are not yet trusting in Jesus Christ. Strengthen the faith that of those who are in this room believing in you but asking for you to help their unbelief. Give direction to the rudderless. Give conviction to the person trapped in a pattern of sin. Give freedom and liberty to those captured by the enemy to do his will. Give clarity of mind to those deluded by 10,000 dark philosophies in the world and all over the internet and on 10,000 more podcasts. Strengthen and unify your church like a mighty cyclone where your spirit whirls us into a tight, sharp, powerful tool of worship and praise upward to you and destroying of every evil stronghold when we touch the earth. You're invincible, Lord Jesus. We will savor that just now in these few minutes as we worship over the Word, savoring all that you are for us, Jesus Christ, as you bring us to the Father, lavishing generously upon us the Holy Spirit. So it's by His help we pray all these things and now study. Amen. Why do you think the writer of Hebrews makes it such a big question that he devote a whole chapter to it to say that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels and the prophets? Why does he have to say that? Why is that a big deal? Why would you write a whole chapter in the Bible about that? You write a whole chapter in the Bible about that because there was lots of confusion over who Jesus is in the first century. 
the writer of Hebrews knows that he's writing to Hebrew Christians in the first century, probably before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. He doesn't make mention of that, so it's probably before 70 AD. And he knows they're confused by these two lurking ideas out there that, by the way, still confuse us today. Idea number one, Jesus is a real person. He was born to Mary, adopted by Joseph, and he was a cute little baby born in Bethlehem. He can't hurt a flea. He's meek and mild. Don't be afraid of him. We like him. We could use lots more Jesuses in world history. Let's have lots and lots of truth-telling, wise rabbi sages like him. True, but a lie. True, but a lie. There was another group that said, oh no, we don't even know if he had a body. It isn't even important that he had a body. We don't even want to picture his body of God somehow brutalized and crucified, dying on the cross, going into the grave. That, that doesn't compute. We don't even need to think he had a, had a body. Let's just think about him as a spirit. Let's try to relate to him in some kind of mystical, spiritual way. We don't need to have Jesus with a body. Who knows? He may be, maybe his, his being born to Mary and Joseph is just all a legend. What's really important is that you meet him spiritually. He's God and he's God's spirit, but he wasn't really man. He wasn't really physical. He was more mystical, and that's everywhere today, isn't it? Books sold at every major Christian bookseller lie about Jesus by saying you can connect with him in some kind of weird, mystical way. Entire wings of the church are trying to say, let's not talk about Jesus and all the bloody death on the cross. That's too gruesome. That's too stark and dramatic and shocking and scandalous. Let's talk about the mystical Jesus who can be what you want him to be in your personal experience of him. True. Sort of. But a lie. The writer of Hebrews, and my burden together, I believe, guided by the Holy Spirit, is this. Hold together and never separate in your mind, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Don't ever let that go. Don't ever let it go in any conversation. Don't ever let it go in any Bible study. Don't ever let it go in anything you write or read. Don't ever let it go in any conversation with your children or with your spouse or with your parents, with your roommates, your coworkers. Don't ever let it go online. Don't ever let it go anywhere. He, Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. When you come to worship Jesus born to Mary, you bow before the newborn Christ and you are worshiping God, the God of gods, eternally begotten Son of the Father. When you come to bow and worship before the newborn child, baby Jesus, he's fully man. He took on flesh in order that it might be torn and bleed and die on our behalf. The gospel is gutted. The Christian faith is gutted. Your existence is gutted. Our hope and our future in heaven is gutted if Christ is not fully God and fully man. Hold those intimately and unbreakably together. That's what's being answered here in Hebrews chapter 1. That's what's being pressed upon us. 
In the last few verses we're going to look at in verses 10 through 14, the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 102. And Psalm 102 is all about God the Father. It's all about Yahweh. In fact, it uses the name in Hebrew, Yahweh, several times. And it extols him as how great he is. How great is God? What's stunning and mind-blowing is the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 says, I'm taking Psalm 102 and I'm not just seeing the glory of God the Father, Yahweh. I'm seeing it all about the Son as well. It's all about Christ, and he reads his Bible that way. If you begin to take on a Bible reading plan, as many of us here at The Landing are doing starting in 2024, make sure you read Old and New Testament and make sure you look for Christ on every page. Make sure when you're reading, you see the way the New Testament reads the Old Testament, the way Jesus read the Old Testament, where he said to the two on the road to Emmaus, I'm in all of Moses and all the prophets. Read the Bible that way. Teach it to your children that way. I had a sweet email interchange, brief and sweet, with a mentor, professor, friend of mine this week. His name is Tom Schreiner. Oh, how I love him. Oh, how I love him. And I love his son. He's got... He's got several sons, but one specific son has followed in his dad's footsteps as a scholar. His name is Patrick Schreiner. Read everything you can from Patrick Schreiner. He's written three or four books. He's a brilliant scholar. Highly commend Tom and his son Patrick. Patrick wrote an article. It's in this current issue of Christianity Today. I read it online. You can read it for yourself. It's fascinating. I commend it. In which he said, we've completely misread the nativity scene. We think we're being biblical when we go up to the nativity scene and start picking it apart. Like, wait a minute. <laughs> they didn't have big log, logs like that to build a big old stable like that back in Jerusalem or in Bethlehem. Or, wait a minute, what are those magi doing there? They came much later when Jesus was about two years old. And, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> you, we start picking it apart thinking we're being very, very biblical when we can find all the disjunctive disconnects in the nativity scene. But it's we who actually need some schooling. The nativity scene was invented in the 3rd century. 229, 230 or so is the earliest nativity scene. It was invented by a pastor who was deeply grieved that so many of the people he was shepherding were under persecution and they were forced into caves called catacombs in Rome. This pastor decided he would draw, and, and then ultimately there was carvings of the nativity scene that you and I even see today, 1,800 years later. It, it, it showed a, either a cave or a, or a cattle stall, a manger, and it showed Mother Mary and Father Joseph, and it showed shepherds, and it showed oxen and donkeys and sheep and maybe a camel and some wise men or magi. And it, and it showed a star over the place where the baby lay. And all of that was not an attempt to be chronologically accurate. That's the way modern Americans think. Undo that in your mind. It's not helpful. It was all an attempt to get the meaning of the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, into one little scene. 
It was not altogether different than when persecuted Christians would drag their toe from their sandal in the sand in the shape of a fish, which in Greek is the word ichthus. That's what the Greek word for fish is. And it has the acronym Son of God, God's Son, our Savior. It was the gospel captured in one little cryptic fish sign on the ground. So also the nativity scene created by this pastor was meant to encourage persecuted believers who were huddling in caves, scared that they were going to be killed because they followed Jesus Christ and were called atheists because they didn't worship Roman gods. By the way, the pastor was martyred himself on February 14th, 229. His name was Valentine. He loved his people so deeply that he wanted them to see the gospel in the picture of Christ's birth. I'm going to use that nativity scene image that you've got in your head right now as an outline for looking at the glories of this God-man, Jesus Christ, on display for us in the final paragraphs of Hebrews 1. The writer of Hebrews 1 is climaxing his development of his, of his teaching on who Christ is. He's the God and man. And ultimately, what we're going to see in these next few verses is that the Son is invincible. The Son is invincible. Nothing can come against Him, thwart Him, or impede Him. No enemy threatens Him successfully. The Son is invincible. You can see the invincibility of the Son in four ways. Look at me, verse 10 with me first. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. That's Psalm 102. And now the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus, you did that too as the Son eternal. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. What he means by this is, all the earth and all creation around us is evidence that the sun is undeniable. You can look at the human body. You can look at tiny babies being formed by God in their mother's wombs through intrauterine photography. You can look at the telescopes that show us far away galaxies and stars. You can look at nature and cells. You can look at all the interworkings of atoms and molecules and neutrinos and quarks, and you can see the heavens are telling the glory of God. In fact, the heavens are telling the glory of Christ. He's undeniable. He laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. He says laid the foundations because everybody is curious. Human beings of all stripes and sorts at all times all want to know where did the earth come from? Where did I begin? Where did time begin? Where did the first matter begin? We're all curious as part of being in the image of God. The writer of Hebrews says the answers are found in Christ. He laid the foundations of the earth. Everything beautiful and wonderful in the earth, everything that happens, every glorious thing that is violated by war and hatred and sin and darkness that causes grief, everything on the earth has its foundations laid in Christ. If you come before the Scriptures and ask the question, who created the world and where did it come from? You're invited to come before the manger, as it were. You're invited to come before the child 
lying in a manger, newly born. And he there is not only the creator of the world, he's the sustainer of the world while he lays there. And he invites you to bow before him in worship. Do you have eyes to see and a heart to rejoice that while he lays in his mother's lap, he's sustaining the very world in which he lives? Breathtaking. Worship the undeniable Christ. This is why the writer of Hebrews puts him higher than angels, than prophets, than all persons. He's invincible. One reason is because he's undeniable. You can see this, can't you? This gathering in of all nature. What did Valentine mean when he brought the ox and ass together to worship? Patrick Schreiner's article rightly says, the original nativity was to show us Isaiah 11. The lion will lie down with the lamb. To show us the outcome of Noah gathering a pair of each of the created beings in the ark. To remind us what Paul means in Colossians 1.20 when he says, All the earth will be redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. There will be a day when this child will grow, he'll live a righteous life, die, rise again, reign at the Father's right hand and bring the kingdom to come, and then the lame will walk. Nations will be united. Death will be no more. All will be resurrected, some to life and some to eternal judgment. The blind will see, the dead will live, and the earth will be renewed. May the Lord open your eyes to come before this baby Jesus and worship him as fully God and fully man. Invincible because as the animals gathered near him say with their every breath, he laid the foundations of the earth and owns all creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. The Son is undeniable. That's one reason why He's invincible. Another reason why He's invincible comes from verse 11. The Son is unstoppable. They will perish, still talking about the heavens and all that's in them, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Peter says it this way in his second letter to his readers in 2 Peter 3, 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are to be stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. He goes on in chapter 3, Peter does, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, then the heavens will pass away with a roar, heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Jesus like a mighty warrior, victorious in battle, will take the heavens and all that exists in them, angels and demons and all creation, humanity and all, and he will roll it up like a scorched battle flag and say, you've done your purpose. You've served well. It's now my time to renew you. You remember the end of Revelation chapter 6? It's the Lamb who will bring about this destruction at the end of life and time. 
Listen as I read famously to our hearts as we studied Revelation not many months ago. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful. Everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For that day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? If the Son is invincible, both God and man, and in all nature he's undeniable, now we see in this verse that he's unstoppable. Anyone, anyone who comes against Christ, that even, yes, this little, delicate, hungry, crying, sleeping baby, whoever comes against him, they will be crushed into pieces and he will remain. He's unmovable, unstoppable, unthwartable, unimpedable. All the nations will gather around him. All the nations will come and worship him. All the nations will bow the knee, stunned and enwrapped and overwhelmed by the glory of his might and fearful of his just wrath. What would you pick in the, in the scene of the nativity to represent this judgment over all creation by an unstoppable, invincible Christ. I picked the Magi. Coming from the East, educated enough to read and to know of the prophecies, coming to worship the newborn king. The Magi, representing all the nations of the earth, all the nations who by their very design try to stop the cause of Christ. Hinder the cause of Christ. Hinder those made in the image of Christ and defame and dishonor them in 10,000 new creative inventions of evil. The nations, the rulers, the educated, the wise, all who think themselves something will come before the delicate yet unstoppable God-man, Jesus Christ, and find Him absolutely invincible. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. The sun remains forever. He's unstoppable. Nothing thwarts His plans. So Peter asks, how then shall we live in view of this burning that's going to come and destroy this rolled up battle flag, scarred and scorched, and unfold a new heavens and a new earth. How then shall we live? Peter gives his own answer, doesn't he? You might remember how Peter gives it. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? The answer to the question, how do we live knowing the fire's coming? We smell the oncoming fire in our prayer lives. And in lots of Bible passages, we open the Bible and the fragrant aroma of smoke comes up and we say, there's a fire coming. No floods, but a fire. How do we live? We say, Lord, I dedicate my life to you. That's what it means to be holy. I devote myself to you. Holiness, fundamental de definition of holiness is devoted. 
which then entails separating yourself from others. But the fundamental definition of holiness is devoted. Godliness. Devote yourself to what? To the image of God we've seen in Jesus Christ. I'm going to live like Him. Transform me, Lord, from one degree of glory to another into your Son as I gaze upon Him. That's what you pray. May my job, may this illness, may my relationships, may my financial struggles, may my thought life and my reading, may my view of myself and my view of others, May everything in my life be used by you, dear Lord, to cause me to grow from one degree of glory to another into the image of Christ. The invincible God-man, who is undeniable in all nature and unstoppable, even as the Magi come and worship Him, proclaiming that one day all the nations will come. The Son is invincible Not only because he's undeniable and unstoppable, but because he's unchangeable. Look at verse 12. Right on the surface of verse 12, you can see this plainly. Still talking about the heavens and the creation and all that's in them. Psalm 102 continues, quoted by the writer of Hebrews. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. They will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. You can't, brothers and sisters, you can't come to Jesus and find him any different than he's ever been. You can't say anything to him to make him love you more than he loves you. You can't do anything or fail to do anything to make him love you less than he loves you. He is forever the same. He will always be this way. When you meet him now, he's the one you'll meet then. When you meet him in the joy of the health and vibrancy of your life and you are overflowing with energy and abounding in zeal and ideas, he'll be the same Christ you meet when you close your eyes, IV in your arm, having said your final goodbyes, and you open your eyes in his presence, you'll see his face. And you'll say, there you are. Angels change. Humans change. The earth will change. All reality changes, but Christ stands the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hallelujah. Nothing stops him from loving you with all he is and all he has. Every promise of Christ in the Old and New Testaments given to those who are the true Israel believing by faith out of national ethnic Israel and all Gentile nations is true and secure and backed with this promise that I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. Everything else changes, but I'm unchangeable. You can't find me in a bad mood. You can't find me tired or grumbling. You can't find me lacking anything. I am always perfect and overflowing in love and in grace and in peace and in holiness, in truth and in joy. Who would you pick around the nativity to describe this image? What do you think's going on in Pastor Valentine's head when he wants his people to be so encouraged and he smells that they're starting the 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 funeral pyre and the martyrdom fires for him to stand at the stake and burn from his feet up to his scalp, what would he put in the image to make sure his people would remember 
remember that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever and unchangeable. I pick Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph are both out of the tribe of Judah, and they're both recipients of the promises made all through the Old Testament. And there they are holding the Christ child. Mary read her Bible carefully, and she knew well the promises, and she lived them and loved them, and here she is. Imagine the way her heart is overflowing. Imagine the way Joseph, who loves her deeply and knows just by being her husband, he is going to come under all kinds of false accusation and attack and persecution. What did you do, Joseph? You're not even married yet, and you're having a child. Didn't we teach you better than that, Joseph? You don't understand. Of course we don't understand. Of course you'd say that. You just wonder if while holding the child with her husband nearby her after the baby was newly born, Mary didn't sing, My soul magnifies the Lord. And the Spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Me, Mary, I need saving. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That's me. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed because of Christ. For he who is mighty, God, has done great things for me. And holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. What a promise. He has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Another promise. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Another promise. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Yet another. He has helped his servant Israel and in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This Christ, who is unchangeable, the God and man, keeps his promises. Every promise made in the Old Testament is made to the people of God throughout all time and among all the nations who trust in him by faith, thus becoming sons of Abraham. Paul said to the Colossians, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3.3. And that came into mind just as I was writing this. And I thought, there's another thing in this nativity scene that makes me think of the promises and the faithfulness and the unchangeableness of Christ. Many traditions have it, and, and some depictions have it, that Christ as a baby was born to Mary and Joseph inside a cave. What do caves mean? We don't know if he was born inside a cave. We don't know exactly where he was born inside of. Could have been a stable. Could have been out in the open air. We don't know. But we do know, if you look up cave in the Old Testament, it shows up about 25, 30 times, and most of them are for protection. Most of them are safety. Like when, when David was in the cave with his mighty men and he was protected. Or Paul here saying in Colossians 3.3, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Or, or when the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, much later in the book, says, There are many believers who had to hide in caves in order to survive. And surely, surely, just 200 years later, that would have come to mind to Pastor Valentine as he wanted so desperately for all of his beloved flock who are hiding in caves to be encouraged. You can go to him in prayer at the end of 2023, and you can bring every single burden, you can bring every single sorrow, you can bring the ones you don't even want to say the words and the ones you don't even have vocabulary to speak, you can bring every ache and groaning and yearning and sorrow and tear to the Lord in prayer, and He will receive it 
just as he always has received prayer, for he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's why he's invincible. My final reason for why he's invincible comes from verse 13. Not only undeniable and unstoppable and unchangeable, but here his grace is irresistible. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's a quote from Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand, son, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What does Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father mean? It means three massive things. Number one, it means Christ is reigning with the Father. We learned that in adult Sunday school today. It's wonderful to consider the fact that Christ, the God-man, reigns with the eternal Father, for they are together eternal with the Spirit, three and one, and they reign over all that exists and all that ever shall exist. Two, it means He's rejoicing with the Father in the full atonement achieved by Him for His bride on the cross. Despising the shame, Christ endured the cross for the joy set before him. The joy was sitting at the Father's right hand saying, Dad, I did it. I got her. Slay the dragon. Get the girl. I got the girl. The whole Bible in nine words. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him. That's the third. He's receiving full answers to his requests for sinners like you and me that the benefit and merit of the cross would be poured out on all who call upon the name of the Lord. All who call upon the name of the Lord have all the cross and all its benefits poured out. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then he sifts and purifies and perfects everything that he permits into your life, even the hardest things that you could ever imagine. He has a wonderful way of saying, for believers, those who love me and are called according to my purpose, I work all things out for good. The son sitting at the right hand according to Psalm 110 and now according to verse 13 of Hebrews 1 is the son reigning, the son rejoicing, and the son receiving answers. And that's the best possible news in the world because it means the father received the sacrifice of the son's blood for your sin, which he rightly despised and has too pure of eyes to even look upon. My sin is paid, your sin is paid. All our sin is wiped away and paid in full. Perfected is the word the writer of Hebrews uses to say the condition you live in before the Lord is absolutely perfect. Hebrews 10, 13. Every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you know the beginning of the solving of every struggle in your heart? The beginning is this verse. If I'm trusting in Jesus Christ, I stand before him perfect, complete. My positional standing is glory. My head, my memories, 
my body, my identity, my beliefs, my relationships, perfected. That's your standing. To begin anywhere else is to endeavor in trying to fix the symptoms of a deep, deep, deep sin cancer within our lives, and it never repairs it. It never heals it. It never removes it and brings full, complete perfection. But to begin with the great truth, challenging and impossible by our own strength to believe that we are perfect before a holy God, that then is the beginning to say, now, Lord, would you cause my life to be ordered according to the perfection I have in you already? Would you teach me to say the words and think the thoughts and carry out the habits and have an identity of myself and and an esteem of myself and others that's in line with my perfection before you? The Son sits at the Father's right hand and He prays down all of these and, and countless more blessings down upon the people of God for whom He has died and who have trusted in Him. What would you pick in the nativity scene to signify this? Well, I first picked gold and frankincense and myrrh because it made me think about the the kingship of Christ and the frankincense and myrrh made me think about his, his worth and the fact that he was buried with 75 pounds of spices made of these and, and how fragrant it would be for these spices to waft, as it were, heavenly, heavenward and be like the priestly prayer that he's praying on the right hand of the Father for me and for you that we would remain faithful to the end and he always receives yes to his answers to prayer. But then I thought it's Jesus himself. It's the Christ child. His name is Jesus because as we heard Matthew 121 says she will bear a son and you should call his name Jesus for he will pay for and remove the sins of his people. He will save us from our sins. Have you been saved from your sins through Jesus Christ? Have you been saved from your sins through Jesus Christ? Do you know it and does everyone around you know it? Have you said, I receive you, Jesus. I receive your sacrifice on my behalf. It's so very jarring to picture the beautiful, pure skin of a newborn child and say, it is God's design. This is what people hate. What I'm about to say is what gets people riled up angry at people like me and at churches like us. The Bible teaches the God-man comes in a beautiful baby, one to be held and cherished and loved and coddled and kissed and, and, and delighted in. And he came in order that that very body would be broken for you. Because your sin violates a holy God and mine does too. The nativity scene must have Jesus in the center. Our whole life was out of order when we lived in Michigan one year, and we had our nativity scene with little Velcro things on the burlap, and we lost our baby Jesus. It wasn't good. We all were looking. Did we ever find it? Twice we found it. We lost two of them. The truth comes out. Some enemies remain. God doesn't overcome their resistance. He permits it to continue even to final destruction. And as Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father, the God-man, fully invincible, all his purposes achieved, all his plans unfold, all his promises kept, all his glories revealed, 
some enemies remain. Hebrews 2 says it this way, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, that is the Father putting everything under, under Christ, he left nothing outside his control. Christ is absolutely sovereign. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, and that's the struggle of the recipients of this letter and ours as well. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus' death purchases the delicious taste, vile and acrid and horrible to him, purchases the delicious taste of gracious patience from God for a world that he's still offering the opportunity to repent. Jesus' death, horrible to him, buys the delicious taste of gracious salvation of God for all who repent. Be that one today. Repent if you never have. Do it swiftly. Tune out the rest of my voice and everything else that happens in the next few moments and go to the Lord with your eyes open or your eyes closed and say, Lord, I repent of all the sin that I've ever committed that hung you on the cross. I receive your forgiveness and salvation. Paul says he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So the son is invincible. He's undeniable, unstoppable, unchangeable, and irresistible. He's a tiny child born to Mary, and then a toddler skinning his knee, and then a boy of 12 straying from his parents, and then a brutalized teacher hanging, dying on the tree, and then a corpse carried to a borrowed grave. Yet in all those scenes, including the resurrection... He is invincible because he's God and man. And every enemy who comes against him will collapse into smithereens. Look at the last verse of this chapter. Are they not all ministering spirits, angels, sent out to serve those for the sake of to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? I only want to draw out one observation. And with this I close. Look at this salvation. This is the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. And chapter 2 will say, don't neglect this. Delight in this. Make sure that every element of your Christmas tradition observance has the salvation of Christ in it. Don't let Christ be lost in your Christmas like happened to the Nelsons. I knew that would come in as a sermon illustration helpful sometime. First time I've ever thought of it. What is our salvation? Our salvation is this. So think broad with me now. Look at the words, the beautiful words inside Holy Scripture. We who are to inherit salvation, we have angels serving us. There's probably angels in this room, angels over cars, angels in surgery, ORs, angels angels in counseling rooms, angels in corners of your home and all through the stratosphere, according to Revelation, and across the globe, ministering to you and me and all who are to inherit salvation. What is this salvation? This salvation can be summed up like this. We inherit salvation, which Psalm 1611 says is joy at his right hand. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So we inherit Christ and all the joy of knowing him intimately and freely, nothing between us, pure joy at his right hand. But we're told in verse 2 and verse 4 that he inherits all things. 
So last night I'm putting this together in my mind. Our salvation is we get him and he gets us. We inherit him, he inherits us. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. That Christ inherits his bride and the bride inherits Christ. And it's all because of you, Father, through the Spirit. That's our salvation. That's what the angels are doing. They're ministering to that in your life. No wonder they came to the shepherds and said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. We could say so much more, Lord, than what we have. Take the foolishness of what I have offered and baptize and purify it into helpfulness for the saints as they come to Christ, remain with Christ, trust in Christ, and proclaim Christ. You are invincible because you are God and man. Your creation is undeniable. Your sovereignty unstoppable. Your love unchangeable. And your grace irresistible. We worship you. Maybe those who are worshiping now in the singing of this song under the leadership of these children because they are worshiping for the first time as one of your children. May it be, Lord, that you are drawing powerfully and irresistibly those to yourself who came into this room not knowing you for themselves, having received you as Lord and their Savior. Just like Mary received you as her Savior, do it, Lord, in the hearts of any who need. And for those who need a fresh taste of your greatness, would you give them sweet words of confession and renewal and honest, humble brokenness before you to receive a fresh like they once did, an outpouring of your grace and of your love. We pray, Lord, that you would enable us as a faith family to go into the rest of our Christmas preparations and the jobs and tasks and activities that lie ahead of us this week and in the weeks and years to come until you return, happily proclaiming on every mountain, Jesus Christ is Lord. No matter what may come. In fact, if there's any hardship you have appointed for us, we'll wear it as a badge of honor. For you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray and now sing. Amen. Would you stand?